You're listening to the show that talks about stuff the others can't, don't, or won't. The Drew Marshall Show on Joy 1250. Well, many of you have been waiting for this interview for quite a while now. Anne Rice, best-selling author of The Vampire Chronicles. Here's a little quote from her. In 1998, I returned to the Catholic Church after years of pondering and searching the great gift of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior came back to me on a December afternoon, and I went home to the church of my childhood, becoming a member and supporter of it with my whole soul. In 2002, I experienced another transformation while sitting in church talking to the Lord. I realized that the greatest thing I could do to show my complete love for Him was to consecrate my work to Him. Ladies and gentlemen, Anne Rice. Boy, you have had quite the change in lifestyle. Uh, I've spoken to a couple of people today already about you, one being a gentleman named Chuck Colson. Do you know that name at all? Oh, certainly, Chuck. Well, Chuck he, Colson, yes. he is a big, he's a big fan of yours. He, he would love to uh, chat with you. He was thrilled to hear about the turnaround in your life, of course. He's a little concerned that you're, uh, you're uh, backing uh, Clinton. But uh, you know Chuck. You know Chuck, right? Well, I think at this point, nobody needs to be concerned about me back in <laughs> <laughs> That's a moot point. It but is. I have, for the record, always been pro-life. And I think there are many pro-life Democrats. We are, you know, we are pro-life and we are Democrat for other reasons. The whole, whole spectrum of life and death issues is what concerns us and... Uh, you know, I'm not the only one. No, no. Well, and then there's another gentleman I spoke to today. I was driving down to the show, and a gentleman named Paul Young gave me a call. He's known as William P. Young. He's the author of this latest craze called The Shack. Have you heard of this? I have. I just bought the novel because a friend of mine uh, mentioned it to me, and um, I haven't read it yet, but I have it. Oh, my goodness. Well, this this has been quite a phenomenon. And matter of fact, in the last two weeks alone, they've sold 500,000 copies. Bravo for them. I'm always happy when an author scores. <laughs> and bravo that it's a good novel and people people are getting something out of it. Yeah, I mean, here's a gentleman who's writing fiction and using the power of story to, to communicate the persona of the Trinity. And, of course, let's talk about your books. Well, uh, there's the, the Vampire Chronicles, but now we're into the, sort of the Christ Chronicles, so to speak. We really are, yeah. I, I'm working on The Life of Christ, and I've finished two novels, thank heaven, and I'm working on the third now, which is in some ways the most difficult because we're, I'm moving into the ministry of Jesus, and I don't think any fiction writer or motion picture maker has ever been able to do all of the things that are in the four Gospels. Hmm. So it's difficult to know what to choose and what to do, and the chronologies differ, and, and yet I want to be absolutely faithful to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, Anne, apparently you broke a lot of rules when it came to writing about vampires. No one had done first person, for example. Uh, that experience seems like it would serve you quite well with your latest Christ-based endeavors. Well, I think it has. I, I feel that over 27 years, the best novels I was able to write were always in the first person. So I brought that to the table, so to speak. I brought that uh, apprenticeship to the table when it came to writing about our Lord Jesus Christ, and I felt there was, a, there was a way to do it while still respecting entirely that Jesus is God, that that he is divine as well as human. I felt I found in Scripture the passages that gave me the room to do it and yet be a completely orthodox Christian. Just thinking about developing this, this great cosmology for your vampire chronicles, 
in some ways, it must have been open territory. Like, you could add fiction to fiction, no problem. Oh, yes, absolutely. But, but with your books on Christ, you must have had to rethink your whole cosmological creativity. Oh, I did. I did. It was, it was really quite amazing. I, I guess the difference would be, I mean, a good comparison would be freehand drawing and then trying to draw exactly what you see, you know, which is a totally different discipline. And I, I did have to um, study Scripture night and day, and I did have to question every single syllable, really, every word that I wrote in terms of Scripture. And it's been quite a challenge, but, it, you know, it's a magnificent challenge. It's a, if I may use the words, it's a magnificent obsession. It's a, it's a great desire to bring this fiction into the reality of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yet keep it vital, keep it, keep it a book that a mainstream reader wants to read and, uh, and that a Christian reader wants to read. The question has been asked many times, Anne, do fiction writers have a responsibility to truth or to historical accuracy? Case in point, uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code was panned on the one hand for exclaiming, in the forward, I think that although this book was fiction, that great pains were taken to ensure that the book's historicity and evidential historical facts were, were indeed factual, even though we later found out that re remarkable inaccuracies were found throughout the book. <laughs> remarkable isn't, that's an understatement. I mean, Dan Brown confabulated about everything and everybody in that book. It was absolutely hilarious. Yes, and, and yet one of his initial defense before his critics was to say, hey, lighten up, it's just fiction. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, where else could he go? I mean, if you're willing to tell total lies about Opus Dei, about the Knights Templar, about Mary Magdalene herself, about Jesus, about the Church, you know, I guess you're going to have to retreat at some point and say, hey, it's just fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you must have had great times of trepidation writing fiction on the life of Christ, the personal life of Christ. Oh, I did. I did. I experienced a lot of terror about it. And, uh, you know, and I prayed. And I prayed constantly, and I pray constantly now. I, you know, I begin my day by praying for the Holy Spirit to guide me. And I begin, you know, usually by warming up by reading Scripture itself and by reading some of the commentaries that have helped me so much. I mean, we have brilliant, brilliant believer scholars. You know, the, the, the skeptical scholars make the headlines. Hmm. And they get on TV as, as the Jesus experts. But as you know, we have millions, not millions, but we have many, many, many believing scholars who write brilliant books about, about Scripture. And they're very helpful to me. They're my angels. I know very little about writing fiction. I've lived a lot of fiction, but, but I've mm -hmm. not written a whole lot. Uh, apparent, <laughs> That's apparent... an interesting statement. You've lived a lot of fiction. Well, well, I... <laughs> You've lived a lot of nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, in order to develop a fictional character, Anne, the characters must become real in the author's mind. That's true. That's really true. For, for example, you have said that the vampire of Lestat goes everywhere with you. This 18th century man of reason travels mm -hmm. with you in your mind, especially when you walk into a department store and look mm -hmm. upon the latest trends and fashions. Oh, very, very true. Going through an all-night drugstore as Lestat is really fun because there's not a single item in there that existed in the 18th century when he was born. And I've had him say that in The Tale of the Body Thief, you know, that very statement. But there's a part of me, Anne, that, could, you know, my head goes to one side, and, and I kind of go, you know, what medication are you on? <laughs> Would you really like to know? <laughs> no, no. No, because, no, my, I just, I travel to the drugstore, and Lestat is there with me. I mean, really? Well, sure. Um, I mean, 
a fiction writer is, is I think, in many ways, an imaginative person. And people vary as to the level of imagination that they enjoy from moment to moment. I was a child who dreamed of dream, dream universes and dream worlds when I was very little. I've always had an overactive imagination. And um, I grew up in the days of radio lying on the floor picturing the whole world as the voices came out of the little box. And hmm. that was wonderful training for a writer. It really, it really was. And um, imagination is always involved. You, some writers, I must say, write about people they don't like, and they seem to enjoy that. <laughs> I'm a writer who writes about people she loves. And if I can't find something to love in a character, that character doesn't last very long in my book. It, it was perfect for you to really grow up, you know, 1941, New Orleans. It was. It was. You know, I, I think given the backward nature of New Orleans, and it is a city behind the times, uh, and I, I glimpsed in, those, in the early 40s many, many things that uh, were very quickly passing away from the earth, really. Hmm. Um, I remember, you know, the garbage trucks pulled by mules. I remember the banana man with his mule and his wagon. I remember the Iceman running up the back steps, and I remember the first electric refrigerator and the first electric washing machine and all of that sort of thing. I think I was very, very blessed to come right at that right time. I remember the war. I, was, I grew up during the war. Not grew up, but, you know, lived to be five years old. You know, for a lady who remembers the war, darling, you look fabulous. Oh, thank you very much. Of course, this move to Richardson, Texas must have been quite a culture shock. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things in your life. No TV until you were 12. I mean, even just your mom. Here's a quote. Tell me if this is accurate. A bit of a bohemian, a bit of a mad woman, a bit of genius, and a great deal of a great teacher. Oh, absolutely. That was my mother. She was one of the greatest people that I was ever privileged to know. There was no question. And every day, it pains me that we could not save her that she died so young 48 47 whatever and that she did not um, have a long and happy life you know it's but boy what she gave us during those years what she gave me my sisters all of us it was uh it was just absolutely fabulous she had a dazzling intelligence and she was a deeply 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 committed catholic and christian and she imparted that great faith to us that great common sense matter of fact total commitment to Christ. Of course, this little Irish Catholic girl wrapped up in the lives of saints and in church history. Why did you decide to leave the faith of your youth behind and become an existentialist, camel-smoking, rebellious college student, eventually turning into a full-time atheist for the next 30 years? Well, but it's something that happens to many, many kids when they go to college. Uh, I went away to college, and I went away to a secular college, and I didn't, I don't think I knew one Catholic on that campus, so there was, of course, a priest who helped me, and there was a church nearby. But I, I made the terrible mistake of believing that I had to leave the religion of my childhood, that it was too rigid and couldn't be the true faith, and that belief in God was, was, was wrong. I, I succumbed, you might say, to the romance of atheism, the romance of agnosticism, the, the belief that you have to shed those old archaic beliefs and you have to go forth and find out what the world is really about. And I fell for that. And I think many young people fall for it and maybe 
we are driven hormonally to rebel against our families at that age. You know, with me, it came a little bit later than with some. Some kids are rebelling at 14 and 15. With me, it was 18 and 19. But I, I lost my faith. I moved away from belief in, in the Lord. And the, the most terrible mistake I made was I stopped talking to him. I stopped taking my problems to him. I should have gone in church and talked directly to him instead of debating as to whether or not he could hear me. Apparently, an interview with the vampire was written during your darkest atheistic years. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that time in your life for us? I mean, would this have anything to do with the death of your six-year-old daughter, Michelle, from leukemia in 72, and, of course, the interview with the vampire being released? It is filled with grief for the loss of my daughter, and it's also filled with grief for the loss of faith. Mm. You know, Louis the hero, once he's made into a vampire, he's a creature of the night, and he loathes what he does. He loathes it, and he looks for context all through the novel. His big question is, is there any way that we could be serving God even though we are cursed and we are doing these evil things? And and actually the great denouement or the great moment in the novel comes when Armand, this ancient immortal, says to him, God created Satan, so if how can we, if we're children of Satan, we're, we're children of God too. God is at the core of it. And Louis sort of despairs after that. He despairs of ever finding any real meaning. He, and that was me. That was me at that age, uh, after Michelle's death, not really being able to make sense of an atheistic world, and yet believing somehow that it was reality, that only weak people went running home to God. And that was a tragic mistake. Um, I went many, many years after that before I came back to the church in 1998. Michelle died in 72, and, you know, maybe she was up there in heaven praying for me. I don't know. My father used to say she would bring me back. Wow, that's that's almost eerie. Mm-hmm. Well, not so if you believe you will see your loved ones again in heaven, and we Catholics talk a lot about the communion of saints, sure. meaning that they're up there helping us and we're down here you know, doing our best to help one another. Do you, do you think there is a direct correlation between moving back to New Orleans and returning to your Catholic faith in 98? It certainly had an influence. It definitely had an influence because when I went back, I found myself among people who were still believers. In California, I'd lived exclusively, really, among people I would call secular humanists. They were good people, and they worked for good causes, and they cared about their lives. But when I went back to New Orleans, I met a lot of old guard Catholics, and they had survived the 60s and the 70s and, and were surviving well into the 80s and 90s. And and certainly that example must have had an influence. And, and you know, sometimes just little things people said had an influence. I, ha- I had a Catholic friend, and I said to him, how can I go back to a church that says my gay son is going to hell? And that Catholic friend he just paused a minute, and then he shrugged, and he said, Our God is an all-merciful God. Well, just that tiny exchange lingered in my mind and kept, kept, kept coming back to me and back to me and back to me. And I think it had an incalculable influence, just that, just that little exchange. Our God is an all-merciful God. Because when I did come back, it was trust in the Lord. I mean, that doesn't mean I think... I know what the Lord is going to do or who he's going to judge, but I know that he knows, and I know he isn't going to make any mistakes. And that was enough for me to suddenly realize that, that I didn't have to have the answers. 
he had the answers. Ann Rice on the phone with us. Ann, I, if I understand things right, 1998 was the initial surrender, a spiritual surrender where you came, came back. What happened in 2002 that sort of solidified your faith? Well, you know, my faith was strong before that, but I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing to be a servant of the Lord. I, you know, as a child, I wanted to be a nun. Uh, I have wanted to be a saint. I have wanted to give my life without reservation to God. And often that intense feeling came back to me. Well, what are you really doing? You're you're going back to church. Yes, you're supporting your church. Yes, you pray. You read the Bible. But what are you doing? I mean, what if the Lord said, come follow me, sell all you owe, give it to the poor, and come follow me? What if he said that to you? Could you do it? And I realized I couldn't. Uh, I had people dependent on me. I had 49 employees. I owned seven buildings. So, you know, I, I thought, Lord, Lord, how? what can I do that would be total? You know, how could I say thy will be done? And it hit me, okay, only write for the Lord. Give him all your work. Just don't write anything ever again that's not for him, completely for him. Hmm. And that means stop writing novels where you argue, well, yes, there is a moral here, but it's somewhat clouded, etc. Now, being the broken person that I am, I did write a final Vampire Chronicle ending the series before I really made good on my promise to him that day. But from there on, there was no going back to the vampires and no going back to the witches. And it was study of the life of Christ and if I do another supernatural series now for my younger readers, it's going to be for Christ. It's going to be a Christian series. It's going to be something that I'd like to believe C.S. Lewis would pick up and read. You know, hmm. probably he wouldn't, but you know, I'd like to believe. It. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, your story. I, I resonate a fair bit with with this part of it, Anne. Uh, I hear all the glory stories. You know, I used to be an axe murderer, then I fell in love with Jesus, and I don't right. kill people with axes anymore. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, right. my, my life was the other way. I sort of surrendered to Christ, and then my life kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something similar to what happened to you. You came back to faith, and then you encountered a series of emergencies? Oh, that well, that's, that's very true. It happened twice. I mean, you know, in 1998... I I went back to our Lord and was married in the church on a Saturday to my husband at a joyful uh, gathering of cousins. And then on Monday morning, I went into a ketoacidosis coma and nearly died. I did die. My heart stopped. It, it was wobbling when I got to the hospital. And, uh, you know, they didn't know whether they could save me for quite a while there. And then later in 2002, when I made my consecration of my work, Within weeks, we found out my husband had a brain tumor, which eventually killed him. It killed him within four and a half months. So both times, I would say, there were dire emergencies almost immediately after. But this is not something I take personally. And the way I look at it is God gave me the faith I would need for these tests. He seemed to give me right at the right moment the the, the grace to come to him so that I'd be ready when these awful things came down the pike. Did you ever sit back and say to yourself, you know, as many, and especially in the evangelical circles, say, well, this is this is the enemy of God attacking me? 
I've, I've finally surrendered. I've made these, these moves forward. I've moved towards the light, and, and, and now the enemy is unhappy with this, and he's trying to mess things up. Well, you know, that that is a very real possibility. Uh, a year ago, I would have said no. But what I've come to realize was that believing in God, I now believe in Satan as well. I mean, he is as real in the New Testament as our Lord Jesus Christ is real. And it's a good possibility that the devil is at work. I, I remember being warned of that by a priest very early on. He said, now that you're starting to write the life of Christ, he said, the devil is going to try things. So, and, you know, at first I thought, mm, I don't know if the devil is really a person. Is he maybe the evil in us? But the more you read the New Testament and the more you, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the more you realize Satan is real and Christ does battle with him. And, and so it very well could be the work of Satan. I, I'm always reluctant to claim that I know whose work it is. Mm, I, I try to focus on I on what I have to do in response to it, but good. I don't know. It could be the Lord testing me. Wow, that is some unbelievable wisdom. I mean, many would say that you're a rookie rookie Christian, yeah. but but my goodness, that is that is just phenomenal wisdom, Anne. Well, thank you. I mean, but, but you know, I do think we're too quick sometimes to claim that the Holy Spirit is on our side yeah. or that the devil is against us. We We have to keep doing what the Lord told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have to keep moving, and we won't always know. We won't always know who's testing us, but we have to pass those tests. In doing the research on you, there are things that I'm, I'm unsure whether are factual or not. Mm-hmm. Th- this massive weight gain, gastric bypass surgery, is it, did all that really happen? Oh, yes. Yes, it did. Um, all throughout the 80s and the 90s, I was very, very heavy. Uh, I would yo-yo down, you know, for a tour, but uh, I was 255 pounds when I had the gastric bypass operation, and it probably saved my life. Daughter dies from leukemia. Husband dies from a brain tumor. Your sister Alice just recently passed. She did. I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, tragic, tragic. But she managed to write, I think, six novels before she died, Mm. and... She was just a very happy storyteller, and I think it was wonderful that she got those novels published. She started very late in life, and she did very well. You go into a diabetic coma, massive weight gain, gastric bypass surgery. I mean, what a life. Well, you know, this is life. This is life. It's, it's, it's happening all around us. I mean, every day, I think, we, we, we are meeting relatives who are losing people with cancer or relatives who are fighting cancer themselves. It is life. It's, it's it's what we it's what we experience here in the world, and 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 I don't think that we should ever think of our commitment to Christ as as sort of empowerment uh, that's going to guarantee good luck. You know, we don't know why a disease comes, and and uh, this is life in America today. I mean, think is it one out of four people have cancer? Whatever it is, it's shocking. I mean, it it's, is just, shocking. it's just it shocking. It's shocking, but, but think of the wonderful things about our country and think of the wonderful things we've been able to achieve. I, I mean, when I was a, a very little girl, I heard the story all the time of, of the children who had died in my grandmother's youth, you know, the ones that never made it to be adults. I mean, that was a time when five out of eight children could die in childhood, mm-hmm. and they did. But we live longer now, and we face different enemies, and we face different problems. You know, I was just thinking your daughter, Michelle, who died of leukemia. She would have been 42 this year. That's amazing. 
that's amazing. With your son being born after Michelle died, there must be quite a backstory to that because your your daughter died at the age of six in seventy two, and your son was born six years later. And right. I mean, was the plan to always have just one child? No, no, no. I I, I think if anything. Once we learned Michelle was sick, we did not want to bring another child into the world because we wanted to care for Michelle. Mm-hmm. And then after Michelle's death, uh, we were gun-shy. We were, we were scared. And we, we didn't really do a whole heck of a lot to prevent conception, really. But, but we didn't have a child until we intended to have Christopher and take a chance again. And, of course, Christopher turned out to be a child who saved our lives because we were very, very heavy drinkers by then. I mean, we were heavy, heavy social drinkers. Mm-hmm. We were, Stan was a college professor and a poet. I was writing The Feast of All Saints, and my second novel, we were both very successful, but, you know, you can do a lot of drinking and be a success. And uh, we were headed down a bad path with booze. We really were. And when Christopher came, he really was the Christ bearer who took us over that stream. I mean, he got us into a new a new territory. We had to give up Boozer. We couldn't take care of him, and both of us realized that, and we thought this child is not going to grow up with alcoholic parents. Hmm. So Christopher saved us. He really did. Earlier in the show, I asked our listeners this question. A a lady wrote saying that she feels like she's failed as a parent because her daughter is a lesbian. Oh, how tragic. I don't think she should feel that way at all. It's interesting we have you on the same show because, of course, Christopher is a gay activist. Right. And I, I just wonder how you processed all of that. Well, you know, it, it's, it's hard for me personally to believe anybody would choose to be gay. It's such a difficult choice that I don't believe people make it. But, but let me say this. Christianity has always had a difficult time with new information. You know, whether it was new information about the earth revolving around the sun, um, new information about the fossil record, whatever it is, Christianity always has a hard time with it. But eventually, the Holy Spirit speaks, people ponder, they go back to Scripture, they, they perhaps revise their interpretation of Scripture. They do their best. They do their best in the face of a flood of new information. And right now, we're getting a lot of that about gay people and about gender, and we, you know, the consensus isn't there yet on what causes people to become gay but i hope this woman does not feel sad because one thing that's becoming very evident is that it doesn't have to do with one's parents very much i mean those are ideas that used to be believed but but we're beginning to see that parents can have four or five straight kids and one kid that's gay Mm -hmm. and and there are gay people out there of course who have had children who are completely straight in fact, I don't think I know a single gay person who has a gay child. Um, you know, I've known gay people who are married and their children are straight. So we don't know what this is about yet. We, we know what the Bible says, yes. And we know that there are contradictions within the Bible. And we wrestle with those contradictions. But I, I think the, the approach right now that the Catholic Church recommends is one of compassion. And I think that should extend all the way through in our souls. We should be compassionate to those who are gay. We should be understanding because we really don't know the whole situation yet. We're going to get more info on this. We're going to get more info as to whether it's hormonal or genetic or an orientation that starts so early in life 
that nobody knows why. But, but in the meantime, what we certainly can do is love everyone. We can love our neighbors, we can love our enemies, and we certainly must love the strangers among us. And if we feel that gays are strangers, we are told by the Bible to love them. I mean, the words are there in Scripture. Remember the stranger. You were once a stranger in the land of Egypt. Be kind to the stranger in your land. And if our gay people are our strangers, then we have to be kind to them. Your warmth, your depth, your wisdom reminds me so much of Nancy H. Do you know Nancy? No, I don't. Nancy is the mother of Anne H. And Anne oh, was, was, of course, yes. Ellen DeGeneres' previous right. lesbian lover, et cetera, et cetera. And Nancy's, right, and she's a wonderful actress. I've yes, yes. Well, Nancy's been on our show a couple of times and has written a, a, a tremendous book about her journey. Of course, she found out her husband uh, had AIDS. Not only was he living a secret gay life, oh, but he tragic. died of AIDS. Tragic. Uh, and then, of course, uh, w with all the stuff that Anne has gone through, quite a compelling book, a compelling read by Nancy H. But you have the same depth as her. I, I don't know what it is about you girls. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, speaking of depth, I have to say that over the years, the gay people I've known, the conscientious gay people I've known, have shown extraordinary depth because I think they come to terms with moral issues almost by force, they have to. You know, when they discover they're gay, they have to make moral decisions, and and they get they get put to the test earlier. Mm. And um, I've seen great depth on their part, and great patience, and great love, and great compassion. And you know, it's all very mysterious. Some of them can marry and have children. Some of them do not. I mean. I mean, I certainly don't claim to have uh, an ounce, an iota of understanding in this particular scenario, but all I'm trying to grasp is the concept of, you know, I can't, I can't imagine God being angry with me for trying to love a gay or lesbian. I just can't imagine oh, no. God, no, God no, saying, I, I, what are you doing? I mean, the Lord has told us in the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you, love your enemies. I mean, and, and that, he, we already, he already has told us to love our neighbors. So that covers everybody. I mean, that covers everybody in the world. And we must, we must love one another, and we must be tolerant of one another. And look what tolerance has done in our country. It's enabled all of these denominations in America and, and in Canada and everywhere, really, to get along together. I mean, tolerance has been a great thing for religion in our countries. And and so I think we need to extend that tolerance to gay people, definitely. I mean, we, we don't have any commission from Christ to cast them out, really. I mean, there are passages in the epistles which can be interpreted in that way. But we know that these were being written to specific church groups at a specific time. Mm. And, and young Christianity was trying to keep its members well-behaved, you know. But perhaps they faced problems that we don't face. Perhaps they had a different idea of things than we have. Some we we go back to scripture again and again for the answers. You know, it's it's the great thing about our Lord is that He is a source of creativity for us. He's a source of us finding solutions to our problems, even when our problems seem absolutely un, un, unbearable. Best-selling author of the Vampire Chronicles, Anne Rice, but of course. Christ the Lord series uh, is uh, taking off tremendously here. The Road to Cana is the latest. Got it in my hands, and I uh, was just, as I said earlier, talking with Chuck Colson, and uh, he has thoroughly enjoyed the read as well. Wonderful. So glad to hear that. If if Stan were alive today, Anne, what do you think he'd say about all this Jesus stuff? 
Well, you know, he was very fine about it all. He really was. Um, when I came in and told him I was going to write The Life of Our Lord, he said that sounded absolutely wonderful to him. I think he was a great respecter of whatever artistic path I wanted to take. He may have seen it in terms of art rather than religion, but he thought it was a noble path. And, you know, when he was dying those four months, uh, and I was doing my biblical research and and sitting in that room with him, I mean, whenever we spoke of these things, he was absolutely for it. Hmm. He was totally for it. And Although he, a staunch atheist, as many may not be yes, aware. Yes, he was an atheist. I, I think he was almost a religious atheist. I used to call him my Bible Belt atheist, <laughs> because he came from Texas, and he, and he had a Bible Belt kind of... Uh, certainty about it all <laughs> and I always thought that he was really close to God because he lived such a conscientious life hmm. and uh, gave so much to his painting and his poetry and 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 I think in the last months of his life he was so charitable and so loving to his caretakers and so concerned with them and their problems and that they get gifts from us that would help them with their lives I think he was close to the Lord I, you know I think we can trust the Lord to reach everyone. We don't know what the outcome of that that point is, wow. but we, we know that our Lord will in some way reach every soul. Very well I, said. I think that's true. Very well said. You know, what do you what do you miss most about this, this love that started at Richardson High? Oh, I miss him I miss him all the time. I I I dream night after night that he and I are looking for a new house to live in. And we're walking through a house, and then I wake up, and I realize he's gone. And uh, I miss an intimacy that went on for 41 years. Um, I miss the person who knew the most about me in the whole world, you know. And I miss the person I loved, as I've never loved anyone in my life other than my parents, you know, my kindred. He was he was like my brother as well as my husband. When you're married 41 years, you do become a brother and a sister as well as lovers. You, you, And his family has always been so good to me. I miss him. I just miss his intensity. I, I want to tell him things. I want to share things with him. And I talk to him. I talk to him. I, I, I say, if you're up there, help me with this. I know you're up there. Help <laughs> me with this. Help me get through this. I talk to him when I see his picture on the wall. Um, but uh, the missing is so total, you know, because he, he and I sat down to dinner at least for 40 years. That last year when I weighed so much, I didn't want to go out of the house. He'd go out to eat. So maybe that was maybe the only year in which we didn't sit down to the dinner table every single solitary night and start arguing or talking or chatting with Christopher or whatever. <laughs> and, I mean... You know, I've, I've never been with any other man and probably never will be with any other man. But Oh, uh, you've just broken a lot of hearts, Anne. Well, <laughs> they have my email address. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it's, it's, it's just I, 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 miss, I miss everything about it. And there was nobody quite like him. Hmm. There really wasn't. I never met anyone like him. Well, just before we say goodbye to you, thank you again for so much time and for your heart. And, and I'm, I'm I'm just enthralled with your wisdom. You know, no one has the right to call you a rookie Jesus person anymore from the stuff I've been hearing, that's for sure. But that's how, very kind of you. How have the evangelicals responded to you? Wonderfully. Wonderfully. I, I would say most of the emails I get are from evangelical Christians. 
and they respond very strongly to the book. And um, you know, I get I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of emails from people who know the Bible really inside and out. And they'll, you know, they'll ask me a particular question that indicates how much they care about Scripture. But you know what they what they usually say is they were suspicious at first, but then they gave the book a chance, and they're glad they did. That's funny. You know, Alice Cooper told me that even though many people have a hard time comprehending who he is and what he does for a living, you know, when they consider the fact that he's been a Jesus guy for so long now, but he says, if if you look close at the lyrics in his songs, you'll you'll see biblical themes and spiritual thirst. Wow, I didn't know Alice Cooper was a Jesus person. Do you know Alice Cooper once named his dog Lestat after my vampire hero? Come on, that's what I heard. I heard that back in the seventies. So for you to tell me now that he's a Jesus person, that's wonderful news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a great chat uh, oh a couple of months ago here on the show and. But, I mean, how do you respond to those same puzzled looks when people's heads tilt to one side and they find out that Anne Rice, the vampire chronicle lady, is not just a follower of Christ now, but has not really in any way denounced her vampirical past? Well, I I get down on my knees, figuratively speaking, and say, give these new books a chance, and if you're still reading the old ones, look at the moral underpinning of those books. Look at the... The religious obsession of those books, those are Christ-haunted books. They are a chronicle of a person's search for God. And I get wonderful letters from the older readers, you know, or the readers of the older books. And I've been making YouTube films, you know, to talk to my readers about these things (laughs) face-to-face. And um, I love those readers of the Vampire Chronicles, and, and many of them saw the books as spiritual books. I think there's a great deal there. I mean, to me, a book was never something to be just written and tossed off. It was always uh, a metaphysical experience, at least, if not a deeply spiritual one. Are you ashamed of your erotica? No, no, but I don't feel too comfortable talking about it because I think it's so offensive to Christians. I don't want to try to sell them on it. I don't want to even really dwell on it. It was something I did 20 years ago, and it was very sincere. And I think a, an interesting case can be made for it, but it's not the case I would make today. You know, I wouldn't write it today. It's not my focus today. Um, it's not something that, that I want to even um, suggest to people. It's, it's you know, it's I don't know that it's ever done anybody any harm, I hope. But I think it, it was an attempt to tame fantasies and to put them in a fairy tale setting so that people could enjoy those fantasies without the horrible violence of um, conventional hack pornography. You know, you know what inspired it? I, I saw this movie on TV called The Toolbox Murders, and it was just a ghastly, ghastly movie. And I thought, you know, people people really don't want that in their pornography. They 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 want the sexuality, yes, but they don't want all this this blood and gore that gets mixed up in so much pornography. And so I tried to write a pornography that was like a theme park for them. But again, I don't feel too comfortable talking about it because I don't think Christians at this point are going to accept books that are devoted entirely to erotic fantasies. 
I have to say, though, that a lot of ladies have come up to me at signings and said, we love your dirty books. My <laughs> husband and I read them in bed. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just gotten hot in the room here a little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I don't feel entirely comfortable trying to put, you know, I, I'm not at a point in my life where I want to do a YouTube on that or or, or write an essay <laughs> no. on that. I mean, no. The other books, I think that, you know, a real case can be made for their value, but that's, that's something, maybe somebody else will come along sure. and make an elegant case. Let's hope and pray. Well, now you've set out to show Jesus as human with the power of story. I wonder if there's a danger portraying Jesus as too human. That's a very important question, and it's a question I have to live with every day. I have to remember this is God. This is the Lord. But I think there's plenty of evidence in Scripture that our Lord put aside his knowledge and frequently let himself experience something in a human way. I mean, we have really beautiful lines in Scripture. We have the word from the Lord himself when he's talking about the last days, and he says, as to that hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son knows when it will come, only the Father. So he's telling us there that he is not using his omniscience. And it's lines like that that have given me the courage to try to create a fictional Jesus who can be surprised by things, who can marvel at things, who can grow angry, and and who is sinless, who is absolutely sinless. But it's it's difficult. It's a difficult question. And, and you know, that's the great beauty of the Incarnation. Jesus is both. He's in heaven now with a human body. And, I mean, that that is such a magnificent truth. And I, I, I don't know, maybe my vocation is to remind people if I can, of the humanity of Jesus while still firmly upholding the divinity of Jesus. Hmm. You have hungered down into some great reading, of course, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. Oh, any, yeah. any other uh, any other Jesus books you'd recommend? Oh, I would recommend anything by Donald Carson, D.A. Carson. He's a, I'm reading his, um, his uh, uh, commentary on the Gospel of John, and Craig Keener is a wonderful writer, K-E-E-N-E-R, Craig has written um, a huge commentary on Matthew and a two-volume commentary on John. And th- these are believer scholars. You know, they're, they're, they're believers, and faith is behind their scholarship, yet they're extraordinary scholars. Hmm. You know, they study every line of the gospel. And I, I would go so far as to say Donald Carson is a scriptural theologian. Hmm. You know, I'm not sure whether Professor Keener would call himself that. But these are wonderful, wonderful writers, and there are many more, you know, there are many more. New Testament scholarship is a funny field right now because you have no way of knowing when you order a book whether that author is really a skeptic with an agenda to cut Jesus down to size, quote-unquote, or whether this is, a, you know, material by a believer. You, you get to learn the publishing houses, but it's slow go, you know, it really is. Um, I went through a lot of skeptics, and uh, before I got to N.T. Wright, the Bishop of Durham, and, and read his magnificent words, and then, of course, I found Donald Carson, I found Professor Keener, I found Richard Buckham, I found many, many, many English scholars um, are among my favorites, and, of course, Roman Catholic scholars, wonderful theologians like Karl Rahner. Uh, and like Walter Casper, who is now a cardinal, and Pope Benedict. I have been reading his new book. It's wonderful. Mm. It's just wonderful, filled with insights. The books on your night uh, nightstand must be just, I mean, my little pile must pale in comparison to the uh, 
the stack you have on your nightside table? You wouldn't believe my office right now. <laughs> I mean, there are tables all over with Bibles open on them, so I can run and check this translation and that translation hmm. and this commentary and that commentary. My bed is actually in here in a little room that's got a bookcase right at the end of the bed filled with books on angels and, and bookcases all over the walls. I, I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded. Sometimes I have to scream for help. You know, come move these books so I can get out of here. <laughs> you know, many people probably want to ask this question, and I, I, I don't know if I have the tact to word this properly, but bottom line is a lot of people want to know, why, why Catholic? Why, you know, why didn't you know, listen, people seem to be becoming born again evangelicals or whatever? I mean, was it simply safer to return to the faith of your youth? It was a deep, deep faith in the Catholic Church. Um, you know, I could give you a politic answer. I could give you an ecumenical answer um, that I went back to the church of my childhood, and it was my mother tongue. You know, it was sure, sure, sure. the language I understood. But there was also a, a definite choice to go back to the oldest denomination on earth, uh, Christian denomination on earth, and that is the Roman Catholic Church. And I also went back for something else. I went back for the Eucharist. I went back for the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on that altar because I believe that he is there, that, that when the priest says those words, this is my body, this is my blood, that Christ is with us, body and blood, and in a very special way. And I know that might be a turnoff to many of my Protestant, my Protestant readers, but I believe it firmly. And, and I, I went back to my church because my church believes that firmly. And my church believes that every day, as Mass has said. And I wanted to go back to that banquet table. I wanted to receive communion with my community. And I don't make any judgment, really, on others who don't perhaps have those sacraments in their church or who do not believe it is the body and blood of Christ. But I take him at his word in the Last Supper when he says, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. And and so what can I say? As a Catholic, that drew me back, that, that idea of the apostolic succession of, of, you know, an unbroken line of priests and bishops going all the way back to the time when our Lord walked the earth. And that was that is what worked for me. That is what was great for me. I have a good friend, uh, Howard Storm, and he went back to the United Church of Christ. That was the church of his childhood. He strongly considered Roman Catholicism. He, he eventually went back to the United Church of Christ, and he is a mystic. He has been been in heaven, he believes, and he has seen angels, and he made a different decision. And he, he said something very interesting. He said that when he was on the other side with the angels, having this near-death experience, he asked the angels, which church is the best? And the angels said, the church that brings you closest to God. And I thought that was a beautiful answer. So I've given you a lot there. Wow. Maybe not sounding so direct. I've tried to tell the truth as a Catholic, but, but I've also tried to show my respect for all people who go to God. I mean, the most important thing for anyone is that we do not let other people stand between us and God. Don't you think? I... That we never let other people stand between us and the Lord. I mean, we go to Him. And if people are an obstacle... If ministers or priests are an obstacle, we must go around them. But we must go to our Lord who stands there with his arms outstretched for all of us. Anne Rice, your Vampire Chronicles 
Sold nearly 100 million copies. May you sell 101 million of your Christ Chronicles. Christ, <laughs> the, Christ the Lord, The Road to Cana, a novel by Anne Rice. Of course, they sent me the large print version. I'm not sure what I'm to uh, read into that. might have something to do with my hair loss as well. <laughs> it's probably just the one they had on the desk at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thankful. I am thankful to uh, to receive this. And and I, you know what? I pray God's bless. I very rarely say this to. Matter of fact, I don't think I've ever said this to a guest. But I pray God's blessing on you. And I don't know what that means ultimately. But you know where you were, where you've been, and where you are now is an intriguing journey to say the least. And I just pray God's blessing on you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I can't tell you. And, and God bless you, too. And may he make his face shine upon you always. And, and may, may you be close to him always. And, and thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It's been our privilege and our pleasure. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. God uh, bless you. Bye-bye. Take care. Anne Rice, what a great lady. Phenomenal story. You may not agree with everything, every bit of theology. But the day you agree with everyone's theology is the day you're barking up the wrong God tree, that's for sure. All right, we will take another break on the show. When we come back, Carrie Pomeroli. That's right, it's time for our semi-regular visit with our favorite and only Hollywood correspondent, Carrie Pomeroli. And then to finish off our show, our journey segment with Emily, a young lady who has struggled for years with anorexia. We'll be right back. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca.